my mother had picked me up from camp that summer. I was 13 years old. And normally I would have talked her ear off all the way back home, but in this particular summer, she was going on and on about this amazing man that she'd met and fallen in love with just during the four weeks I was at camp. Congratulations, I have a stepmother. She looked like a cross between Martha Stewart and the Ayatollah Khomeini. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler, and today on the podcast, Family Secrets. Three stories that prove we often know the least about the people who are closest to us. I am solo this week. Jessica Hankin, my work wife slash beloved partner, is busy on back-to-school stuff. So I am here with one of my favorite themes. Um, I love all stories related to families, and I love even more stories related to family secrets. This first story is um, by Josh Riley. He shared a couple stories on the Stoop stage, and this was at a show that we did in 2016. It was called Family Circus, and it was just about all the craziness that happens in families. Take a listen. So on Sunday, a lot of us um, had the pleasure of watching um, Sidney Lucas destroy, which is what the viral video said, um, the song Ring of Keys from Fun Home um, on Broadway. And, and if you haven't seen it, you're, you've somehow managed to miss something that's gone quite viral. And it's a pretty amazing performance. But for gay people like me and my friends who've watched this video dozens of times through tears, what we see in it is this sort of revelation about something that's so true and common of our experience, which is that even before you come out, even before we came out, there would be these moments, these like flashes of insight where some connection was made with a stranger or something that we recognized that momentarily and instantaneously decoded this thing that we knew about ourselves that was fundamental but didn't have any words. And and that song really captured that. And I had that feeling the first time I met the man who was going to become my stepfather. Um, my mother had picked me up from camp that summer. I was 13 years old. And normally I would have talked her ear off all the way back uh, home. But in this particular summer, she was going on and on about this amazing man that she'd met and fallen in love with just during the four weeks I was at camp. This isn't that surprising for my mother. But anyway, <laughs> coincidentally, I was having crushes on boys all summer as well. <laughs> but I had the presence of mind to know that you don't talk about that, that it's a secret. Um, it's a desperate secret. Lucky for me, my mother's self-involvement kept her from asking me about anything about camp, so it didn't matter. When I met Thomas... She was right. Everything that she'd said in the car was true. He was funny and gregarious and vivacious. He was 12 years younger than she was, so he was young. He was blonde and blue-eyed. He had this incredible laugh that, like, filled up the room. He smoked cigarettes, and so he would smoke and laugh. And uh, he couldn't moderate the, the sound of it, the volume of it, and, and it was great. And I totally saw things in him that made sense to me, like a string being plucked or some harmonic resonance or something. And it's really scary. 
because I was also confused about what that meant. I didn't really know. But I was starting to figure it out, and I knew it needed to be a secret. He was also desperately in love with my mother. Uh, they got married. It was a whirlwind. Um, moved in together. And everything was pretty good for a couple of years. And then Thomas started to unravel. And these peculiar things would happen, like one time out of nowhere he told me that he could travel through time in tornadoes. Um, Familiar. Um, Another time he stole a car from the municipal pool. And his intention was to drive to D.C. to tell the president how much he loved my mother. He was really desperate to love my mother and to let people know how much he loved my mother. The scariest time, oh, sorry, one time he called me after school and said, I'd like you to come meet me at the local high school because I'm training for the Olympics. And I was like, okay. Uh, I went there. I met him. He was wearing the shortest gym shorts you can possibly imagine and the longest gym socks, like way past his knees. He put out his cigarette, did a couple of push-ups, and ran about half a lap and then said, we're done training for the Olympics today. Let's go get a hamburger. And I was like, okay. The scariest one was when he came to my house after school. I lived with my dad and my stepmom and picked me up, and he showed me one of my mother's necklaces, which had a sort of a gemstone in the middle, and he said, your mother's dead. See, the fire is gone. We proceeded to drive to her old house, and he got out of the car and went tropping off into the woods. We didn't, nobody, owned, nobody in the family owned this house. I was like, be careful. Um, he's tromping off in the woods, shouting her name. He comes back. He gets in the car. We drive back to their apartment. I walk in. My mother's sitting on the couch eating grapes. She says, where the fuck have you been? And it was a good question because how we didn't put all of this together and see that he was a big mess, I don't know. Shortly thereafter, she asked him to move out. Um, He became homeless. He broke down her door one night and desperate to hug her and hold her. He was never dangerous. He just wanted so desperately to be with her. Um, He ended up at the state mental hospital where he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and HIV, which had progressed to AIDS. And either because of his own mental health stuff, and now I look back on it and wonder if it was HIV dementia or what it was, but it was definitely shame and definitely embarrassment. He refused any treatment. He moved to California to live with his father. I was coming out all during this time, and I was terrified about what this meant for me. Here's this guy, and we're getting this story over time that's putting these pieces together that's just unbelievable. And I was worried that, was that going to be me? The last time I saw him was when I was, I think, between my freshman and sophomore years of college. And we went out to dinner, and I told him I was gay. And he said, don't ever tell anybody. Don't ever tell anybody. It's your business. And I went back to college, and I came out to my parents. And he died in December of of 1993. I had to tell my mother, and I had to order the death certificate so that she could get a divorce from him. And I tell his story um, because so many stories like his are completely invisible. Um, And I think perpetuating that invisibility perpetuates the world in which kids have to decode this stuff in this really peculiar way that's confusing and painful. Um, 
And I know that uh, secrets will kill you if you let them. Thanks. As I said, that was from 2016. But the good thing about all family stories is they're classics, Uh, just like Chekhov is family stories. And they are as relatable today as they were when they were written, which I don't know when that was, but I should. Our next story is from Kim Lee. This is also from a family circus. And I love this story because it reflects a yearning to know more about a person who is physically so close to us but is absent in some way. And that yearning is just, it's really beautiful. So take a listen. My dad has always been a mystery to me. And he mostly communicates in lectures, which is pretty common amongst dad kind. But the way my dad does it doesn't really leave a lot of space to convey what I might consider to be important details. Case in point, um, I was coming home for a visit from college one day, and there's this lady at his house. And he introduces her as his friend, and she stays, and she keeps staying And then a couple weeks later, I learned that on a recent visit back home to Vietnam, he has married this woman. And congratulations, I have a stepmother. And I was just like, wow, okay, wonderful. And I eventually got to see the photo album and, you know, the decorations, they look really nice. Um, And I was taken aback by that. But even worse was the time that my dad withheld from us until the day after, that he was undergoing quadruple bypass surgery because he didn't want to worry us. And, you know, it's not like we're estranged or fighting or anything. It's just that he communicates things on this need-to-know basis, and we kind of have different ideas about what that basis is. So about a month ago, I was watching a movie with my mother, who lives here, and it was a documentary called Last Days in Vietnam. And it's this movie about the evacuation of the remaining American soldiers and South Vietnamese military personnel at the very end of the Vietnam War, when Saigon was taken over by the communists. And, you know, this had been an event that had been looming in my family's history, and I obviously knew about it, but I had never before grasped the scale of the chaos and the confusion that day until I actually saw the film. And there's this great archival footage from the day, and at one point the camera just pans across this sea of a thousand faces And they're all on this boat that's meant for 200 people. And then when the camera pans, my mom pauses it. And she points at this man who's wearing sunglasses. And she says, I think that's your dad. And I look at him. And I'm not really sure because he's wearing sunglasses. And also because I'm not really used to seeing my dad as this younger person. But the more we freeze and rewind the more convinced that I am that it is him. Because this man has that same tight-lipped, dour countenance that my dad always has on his face. But also because my dad actually was one of the people that escaped that day on the boats. He managed to get out. 
And he left behind my mother, who was three months pregnant with my sister at the time. So I took a screenshot of this man, and I send an email to my dad. Hey, I was watching this movie. By the way, is this you? And eventually he responds, and he says something like, "Uh, I don't know if that guy really looks like me. I think I was on this other boat. And something about his response didn't quite ring true at the time. But I didn't follow up. So I wrote this article, which was a reaction to the documentary, and it was my attempt to just kind of react to this traumatic event that shaped my family's history and to process what had happened to us. And it was published. And I shared it on Facebook, and it was spread around. And eventually, it got to my dad. And I was so nervous about this because I had written this thing that involved him and didn't clear it with him beforehand. And I wasn't sure how he would take it because I'd written it from my mother's perspective. And she talks about that day pretty frequently. Whereas with my dad, there's this gap where his perspective should be. So the weekend the article came out, I got a phone call from him. And I think I was in the middle of, like, brushing my teeth or something, and I dropped the toothbrush, and I just pick up the phone. And we exchanged the usual awkward, hey, how are you? The weather sucks. And then he brings up the article, and that he has read the article, and that he likes it, and I did a good job, and I breathed a sigh of relief. And then I press him again about this photo. He said he looked at it again, and he still wasn't sold. But, you know, those sunglasses looked exactly like the sunglasses that he had been wearing that day, and the shirt was exactly the same color and cut and everything. And then, and then like, come on, Dad, like, this, there's this guy that looks just like you and was doing exactly the same thing that you were doing that day, and it's not you. And he he said this really strange thing. He said he had the hardest time seeing his own face. And that maybe it's easier for other people to recognize him. So he talked about that day and more about my family history and what he was doing. And he told me, about his eldest brother, Tran, who was sent to a re-education camp where he died. And this is the first time I'd ever heard about this uncle. And that day, when the radio announcement happened that the president was surrendering and that the country was over, my dad knew that he had to go. So he grabbed my cousin, and he just ran for the shore, which was five miles away. And by the time he got to the harbor, most of the boats had pulled away, but there was this one boat that was still left. But there was this huge line of people waiting to get on, and he knew he couldn't wait. So he picked up my cousin, and he put him on his shoulders, and then he just jumped for it. And he grabbed onto this rope that had been dangling off the side of this ship, and he climbed aboard, and he made it. And he said that he felt like 
God or luck had steered him to that exact point at that exact time that day. When he left Vietnam, he not only left behind my mother and my sister, but aside from my cousin, the rest of his family, including his own father, who he would never see again because my grandfather passed away shortly after the war had ended. And my dad didn't say this in so many words over the phone, but I could hear the heaviness in his voice that this still bothers him. When he was on that refugee boat, he recognized several people in the crowd, and they would ask him things like, Hey, where's your wife? Or did anyone else make it out? And he was asked this, over and over again. He told me he had never wanted to talk to me about that day, that at first I was too young, and that later when I grew up, it just became too hard. And he wasn't sure how to broach it since, like, I grew up American and sheltered and a world away from where all this happened. But then he read my article And then it occurred to him that maybe I could understand, that he could start to tell me these things. There's so much that I don't know about my father, um, apart from this person who drinks Coors Light and likes to lecture me about getting married someday and proper auto maintenance. But... As I grow older myself and I start to explore my own identity and who I am, I'm starting to realize that I actually do need to know these things. And that luckily, hopefully, I'll get to discover these things not alone, but with my father. Thank you. And our final story today is by Barbara Dale, who is a Baltimore-based artist and cartoonist, and um, as you'll hear, a rebel. I love this story. Take a listen. It was 1964. I was 13 years old, living in Detroit. And my mother, in Detroit. (laughs) And uh, my mother decides that it would be fun for her if I go to charm school. (laughs) I do not want to go to charm school. But, you know, I was a goody-goody kid. I did everything my parents told me to do, so I went. Charm school was located in the Northland Mall. (laughs) In the basement. In this room that was made out of uh, cement block, no windows, and it was right next to the janitor's cleaning supply closet. So when I walked in, it felt like I was being disinfected. (laughs) The teacher was everything you would expect, you know, blonde hair, every hair in place. She looked like a cross between Martha Stewart and the Ayatollah Khomeini. And she tells us to put a book on our head, walk across the room and back, and uh, one at a time with everybody watching you. 
and then she criticizes you. You know, in my case, she says, uh, can't you walk any taller? <laughs> you know, I'm 5'2 now. I was like 4'6 then. You know, the answer to that is no, I cannot. So I don't want to go to the second class, but I don't think I have a choice, so I go. And, but something really big and interesting happened. Two girls skipped charm school and went shopping in the mall. I was like, whoa, I can't believe they're going to do that. You know, I was sure they were going to get in terrible trouble. I thought, you know, they're going from charm school to reform school. <laughs> but instead, they go off to the mall. They're having a great time. They buy stuff. They hide it in their underwear. You know, their, their mom t takes them home. They get away with it scot-free. Well, meanwhile, you know, I'm in charm school, and we're learning how to set the table. <laughs> and I don't mean just, you know, knives and forks. I mean, like, this is a fish fork. This is a charger. You know, this is how to fold a napkin six different ways, like a swan. <laughs> and I'm 13 years old. You know, I'm not exactly having a lot of formal dinner parties. <laughs> So the next week, two other girls skip charm school and go to the mall. And they have a great time. You know, and I'm stuck in charm school, you know, learning how to write the perfect thank you note. <laughs> so the next week comes, the third week, and I, I, you know, I, I may not be charming, but I am smart. And I have detected a pattern. <laughs> you know. They're going to charm school. They're skipping charm school. They're having a lot of fun, you know, and I'm stuck in the cement bunker. So I screw up every bit of courage I had, and I skipped charm school with a friend of mine. To this day, I, I still feel the joy of that. It, it was that first, you know, heady sense of freedom you know, like, I could do what I wanted to do instead of what other people were telling to me to do. And, you know, I, I bought stupid things. I had a chocolate malted milkshake. It was, like, incredible. It was intoxicating. In fact, it was so intoxicating that uh, I pretty much never went back to charm school. <laughs> you know, I went with a different girl every time, uh, skipped class, but I did go to the last class. And at the last class, I got two very bad pieces of information. One, there was going to be a graduation ceremony, and our parents are invited. And two, you had to have attended eight out of 10 classes in order to graduate. Now, I am not good at math. But I could calculate that I wasn't coming anywhere near eight. So like, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm praying for a miracle is really what I'm doing. You know, I'm thinking, like, maybe the teacher didn't notice I wasn't there, you know, or, or maybe somebody stole her attendance book, you know. So I go home, and I don't tell my parents about this ceremony, but they find out about it from somebody else's parents or kids. And my mother's excited. She's like, this is great. We'll be there. And not only that, we're buying you a new dress. 
And they take me to Hudson's in the same mall as the charm school. And they buy me this white, itchy, uncomfortable dress. And now I'm in the dress at the charm school ceremony. My mother's on my left, my father's on my right. I have my ankles crossed and my knees together like they taught me in charm school so that nobody sees your girly parts. And the teacher's in the front. She's in a pink boucle suit and matching pillbox hat. And she starts calling out the names of the graduates in alphabetical order. Now, my maiden name was Burkoff. It starts with a B. So she's in the front, and she goes, uh, Anderson, Appleby, Brown, Carlson. You know, at Carlson, it hits me. They're not going to be calling my name. <laughs> there is no miracle that's going to save me. I am totally, royally fucked. <laughs> and I have to sit there in between my parents, waiting for them to find out and kill me. About halfway through the alphabet, somewhere around LMNOP, my mother leans over and whispers in my ear, maybe you've won some kind of special award. <laughs> and they're saving your name for last. <laughs> and now Zimmerman walks across the stage. And all my friends have gone up and gotten their diplomas and they're happy, you know, and... and the teacher thanks everybody for their hard work and the chairs scrape as people get up to leave and we're just sitting there. And my mother says, she forgot to call your name. That's terrible. And I say, oh, it, it doesn't matter. You know, what really matters is everything that I've learned. <laughs> she says, no, it's not okay. I'm going to go talk to the teacher. And she gets up my dad and I are standing there, and she walks across the room to the Ayatollah. And the two of them are huddling and muttering and huddling and muttering, and then they turn and look at me. And my heart is pounding. And my mother starts this long walk back, and she says, it appears that in order to graduate, one must have attended eight out of ten classes. It also appears that you only attended four. I personally drove you to eight. How do you explain this, young lady? And I'm thinking, that's a good question. So I say, I don't know. I... <laughs> And she says, well, where were you? And I say, I don't know. <laughs> and she says, well, Barbara, do you realize you have flunked charm school? <laughs> and then from above me, I hear this heavenly sound. It's my father, and he's laughing. <laughs> And my heart soars, because I'm going to have one parent. 
And my mother says, Stanley, it's not funny. Your daughter is a charm school flunky. And my father actually pig snorts. <laughs> like, like that. Only much, much louder. And in the middle of all of these polite people. So my mother starts to laugh, and I start to laugh, my dad's laughing, and my heart soars again, because I realize I've been very, very bad, and I'm going to live. <laughs> and that pig snort really is a sort of um, form of forgiveness. And, and it gave me the courage, only a few years later, to skip high school <laughs> and go to downtown Detroit, but this time not to go shopping. This time to go hear Robert F. Kennedy speak. It gave me the courage to march against the Vietnam War, to stand up for myself when I really needed to. My father's pig snort <laughs> gave me the permission to begin to grow up I love that there was such a thing as charm school that one went to to try to get sophisticated and all that. And I have to confess that I often threaten my children with sending them to um, manners school um, if they don't put their napkins on their lap during dinner, which they claim nobody else has to do in the world but them. So thank you so much for joining me today for these three family secret stories. We're really glad uh, to have you listening. And we want to let you know that we have an upcoming live show here in Baltimore. We're doing a partnership with the American Visionary Art Museum, which is just a wonderful, wonderful organization and a true gem of Baltimore. The show is about creating art, creating change. It's stories about art as a tool for social justice. That's on Thursday, October 12th, 2023, at the museum. So you can learn more about that at our website, stoopstorytelling.com. And you can also listen to stories and get all kinds of information about the stoop at that place. We want to thank Maureen Harvey for producing the podcast. Thank you all for listening. And we will be back with more stories from the studio.